Hello to all of you. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, and welcome to my podcast, which we're calling TMI, The Motivation Inside. I hope this will be one fun and productive listening ride for all of you today. For those of you who don't know me, I am the founder of Skybridge Capital, a global investment firm. The reason I'm doing TMI is not to tell you about how successful we are as a firm, but to share with you the many faces of success and wealth, because let's face it, it ain't pretty. I also want to let you in on how I got here, because it's important to understand we all have greatness inside of us, and we can all achieve greatness. I want you all to tap into that greatness, just like we have here at Skybridge. I tell you this every week. I'm not your typical Wall Street guy. I'm not the fancy pants guy living in a fancy pants place somewhere in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. I still live two miles from my mom and dad. I tell you this because maybe you can relate to me and understand my strategies on this road to success and see all that gritty mistakes and the pitfalls that are part of the journey. It's actually the mistakes that are gonna make you stronger It's the embracing of failure and the ability to take on risk, recognizing that you could show up at a cocktail party and somebody who's not taking those risks could look down upon you if you're experiencing a cycle of failure. We've all talked about ambition on TMI and we have touched upon successes and failure, but I want to continue on what makes some people successful and others not so successful. But more importantly, I want to figure out with you how we can help you and your people around you achieve success and turn failures, which are such a very big part of success, into successes. It's important to know that if you're born in the United States and you have a dream, you have a chance to turn it into a reality. Uh, I, I had the good fortune of getting the first third of my life right. I think you sort of have life in three thirds. Uh, From zero to 25, I had a desultory experience in high school, wasn't doing super well, did much better in college, and then ended up graduating from the Harvard Law School. I was hired by Goldman Sachs. I was able to launch two successful businesses, but I was also fired at least temporarily by Goldman Sachs. I went over that in our prior podcast. I built the two successful businesses, but there were many ups and downs through that. And prior to building those two successful businesses, I failed the bar exam uh, and I failed at several jobs. Uh, I remember Ross Perot speaking at a Harvard Business School class in 1987. It was April of 87. Uh, He was in one of those semi-circular teaching auditoriums. And they posted stuff all over campus. Ross Perot coming to campus. He was the founder of EDS. He was a billionaire. Uh, Ken Follett had actually wrote a book about his rescue mission to go into Iran called On the Wings of Eagles uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s. A book is fascinating if you want to read it. But Ross Perot put a team together. Uh, there, there were a group of hostages taken uh, from his company, Electronic Data Systems. And he swooped in there, got the hostages out. Uh, It didn't end up like the nightmare American embassy hostage story. It was a very, very successful thing. And so he was super famous. This is before he ran for president of the United States, five years prior. He is at the Harvard Business School, and he is speaking, and he says, guys, 
I've got really bad news for you. It's a real blankety-blank shame that you've gone to Harvard, and I'm going to tell you why. He said, because you will never want to fail. You've done well in the first third of your life, and so now you're at the top of the food chain, and you'll never take the risks of entrepreneurship that are necessary to take that rising arc, that slope of your life, to a much higher plane. Uh, you'll take the job at McKinsey. You'll take the job at Goldman Sachs or at that time, first Boston. But what you won't do is start your own business out of a garage uh, because you won't want to embrace the failure or, or the potential drop in social status that comes with failure. And then he proceeded to say that failing is an important part of succeeding, and the trick is to dust yourself off and try again, to be willing to reinvent yourself. I mentioned in a prior podcast, uh, it wasn't until age 46 that Sam Walton started Walmart. He had failed twice in other department stores, other variety stores. He wasn't able to get them off the ground. Once he realized that he had to move his destination away from Sears and Kresge, which ultimately became Kmart, once he got those stores 80 miles away from the two major colossal competitors, he was able to compete. Just imagine if at 45 and a half, Sam Walton said, you know, not so good at this retail business, let me walk away. And so what we're talking about today is picking yourself up, fired from Goldman Sachs, rehired into the sales area. Uh, by the way, the guy that fired me 25 years ago in February of 1991, Michael Facitelli, the former CEO of Vernado Realty, will be a guest on TMI in the coming weeks. Uh, we're going to talk about this now, uh, the embarrassment. This all brings me uh, to my next guest, who's a friend, he's a renowned author, and at times my very own professional healthcare advocate. And the reason why I love him so much is he's actually a child psychiatrist. And I submit to all of you adults out there, you know down deep you're just a child in an overgrown aging body. You really probably stopped aging brain-wise as it relates to the things you like, like food and sports at the age of 12 or 13. Maybe by the age of 17, you had some idea of what you love to do in life. Uh, but after that, let's face it, uh, you're just really a kid. Oscar Wilde once said uh, that after 25, we're all basically the same age. And so I submit to everybody out there, we all need a little bit of love and advice and counsel uh, from child psychiatrists. And I'm welcoming now uh, the renowned child psychiatrist, author, president of the Child Mind Institute here in New York, Dr. Harold Koplowitz. Welcome to TMI. Good to be here, Anthony. It's always fun to be with you. So, so let's talk for a second. What do you think of the name of these podcasts? Uh, uh, my producer, Susan Krakauer, came up with it. Uh, TMI, The Motivation Inside or too much information coming from us. What do you think of the what do you think of the name? So I think too much information is very accurate because I think right now there's a lot of information out there and I think in general uh, for parents who worry about their kids 
they want the right information. And I think when people are struggling, when people are trying to succeed after failure or dealing with failure, it's important to get the right information. And unfortunately, because of the new technology out there, there's lots of information uh, and much of it is wrong. And we don't have a curator. We don't have someone saying, you know, don't pay attention to this, really focus on that. And I think that's a challenge for everyone today. So. So if you were going to curate, let's say, for the average student, what would be some of the things that you would want to curate for a, uh, let's say, teenager? So I, I think that parents have a big responsibility in recognizing that even though you have a teenager, they still need you. Um, just because their bodies have changed and just because they think they don't need you doesn't mean they don't need the advice and counsel. One of the things I think that is most important for parents to help kids get resilience is to recognize that they have to finish things they start. And um, just think back to experiences that you had at home where your parents signed you up for something or you thought you loved something and, um, and then very quickly you changed your mind. And it's really important to bear down and get through it. In fact, if we talk to people who are real great experts, they do things that are hard every single day um, until they get easy. So uh, I remember um, our youngest kid decided that he wanted to tap dance. And he'd go to these family receptions, and he sometimes didn't know anybody there, and he was eight years old, and he would go up to the band leader, and he would start dancing, tap dancing, but he could only tap dance to the right. You got and videos then, of and this then, stuff Yes, now? and he walked to the middle, and he did it again. And after a while, he convinced somebody, a distant relative or friend, to buy him tap shoes, but he could only tap dance to the right, and he finally said to his mother, I want to take tap lessons. And she signed him up at uh, the 92nd Street Y, and there were 10 lessons. And after he went twice, he realized that all the other kids in the class were girls. He was the only boy. And he said, I don't want to do it anymore. And she said, oh, that's fine. You do it eight more times, and then you don't have to do it anymore. He said, no, you don't understand. I don't want to do it. And she said, no, you don't understand you're going to finish what you started. And it was really unpleasant. And she's a very good mom. So in the middle of all this, she got tickets to see uh, Bring in the Noise, Bring in the Funk with Savion Glover. And, um, and he got so excited about this that not only did he finish, but he was able to convince some of his friends to join the next class. Now, he's not a professional uh, tap dancer, but it's interesting, by the way, that later on, years later, he's applying to college, and he's sitting with the college advisor at his uh, school, and the teacher and the advisor says, so tell me, Sam, is there anything that's really unique? You know, you're the captain of the lacrosse team, and you're captain of soccer, and you do, you know, you got really good grades, but how, what differentiates you from the other students at, in your grade? And he says, I tap dance. And he said, you're kidding. He said, no, I've, I've actually tap danced with Savion Glover, which was absolutely true. He was 12 years old. Savion was giving a, a solo performance, and it, during right before intermission, intermission, he said, does anybody want to come up and tap dance with me? And the kid had so much bravado, he brought his tap shoes, and he went up there, and he tap danced with Savion, and when he came to sit down, by the way, his grandfather said to him, oh my God, what are you going to do next? And he said, I'm never tap dancing again. <laughs> but it's the kind of thing that, again, something hard, something uncomfortable, and you can bear through it. The other thing that I think that parents really have to be good at is recognizing what their kids are good at. Because if you don't love what you do, it's really going to be quite challenging to do it every single day. And yet, you can't be good at everything. And I think it's important for parents to recognize we still have to do things that are difficult. If you really are inadequate at math, you might need a tutor, you might need to study, 
But it's really important, I think, for your parents to celebrate when you get a C plus if you worked really hard. And I think that's very difficult, particularly when you leave, live in these bubbles, whether so it's, it's New York City as or much as the achievement. Correct, right? correct. But if you live in a bubble in Los Angeles or in New York City or Chicago or Silicon Valley, where everyone you know seems to be a billionaire or a Pulitzer Prize winner or an Oscar winner, it can diminish the child because they think, you know, it's impossible. I'll never compete with the sh- within the shadow of my father or the, my mother or the neighbors. And it's really important for parents to say, no, you know, we treasure what your work ethic is and how hard you worked and the success that you were able to get with that effort. And, and the idea of just blowing smoke and saying, oh, you're good at everything, I think diminishes a kid. It's almost like a false self-esteem movement, isn't it, Harold? I mean, that's one of the concepts that I think I've, I've suffered with or I've, I've watched happen uh, to some of my children where they get a ninth place uh, medal for being the ninth right, place right. recipient of the soccer uh, tournament. That right, sort so, of so self-esteem, the real truth of self-esteem is true accomplishment. And so there's no drug for self-esteem. You know, one, And that's one of the reasons, by the way, that if your kid has dyslexia or your kid has ADHD or a kid has an anxiety disorder, if you pretend they don't have it, those things are real barriers to learning. And so every day going to school is going to be a challenge. So if you keep saying to them, oh, but you're really bright, you're really smart, but they're getting C's and D's, or they, they once in a while get a B, they are not foolish. They look around, they see the really smart kids are getting A's. And so you have to help your kid be the best he can possibly or she can be. Because it's only those kind of, it's getting the goal in soccer, or it is being picked to pay, play on the baseball field, a baseball team that makes the difference. So, but one, one thing I want to hammer back on, because I think this is super important, is finishing what you start. Because right. if you don't finish what you start, uh, you do have a, I, in my opinion, I'm interested in yours, I feel you have a drop-off in self-esteem. It's like, geez, I, I went to law school, failed the bar twice. I ultimately took a couple of weeks off from Goldman Sachs and locked myself in a library and studied for it for two straight weeks in order to pass it even though I knew I was never going to practice law because I wanted to at least tie that up with a nice bow, that part of my life. Do you agree that that's a good thing to do? I think it's, assen- it's essential. You know, it's interesting you mentioned this bar exam. Um, we all have kids in our lives that we mentor. You know, we meet young people. Mm-hmm. They may be in their 20s or 30s who ask for your help. And so I know a young man who went to law school failed the bar exam, and then decided he wanted to become a teacher. He got a master's at Teachers College, which is really one of the better graduate schools in education, and then was looking for a job, came to talk, and spoke to me, could I help him get a position in a high school? And I said to him, you know, if you were my son, the only thing we'd be discussing is taking time off now to pass the bar. And he said, why? I'm not interested in being a lawyer. And he said, well, you got to finish what you start. And the other reason is you have to make yourself better than the average. And so if you now have a master's from Teachers College and you're going to get a job, I have no doubt about it, but in three or four or five years, you're going to want to be a principal or you're going to do something in administration. And if you are a member of the bar and you have finished law school, that is an accomplishment and an achievement that other people don't have. And yes, I understand you don't want to go back to it because no one likes did feeling he, that. Did and he take so, your advice? So he postponed it for one year and he's recently come back to me to tell me how well he's done this past year. But this summer, he's actually taking a course to pass the bar, even though he has no desire to be a lawyer. And I think there's a lot of value in mm-hmm. finishing what we start. Also, it gives you, you, makes you, you have, feel good. If you have children, it's very good role modeling for them. You can turn to them and say, listen, I've had these ups and downs in my life, but by finishing 
you're proving something to yourself. So let me ask you this about issues. You meet a lot of different people. You are a trained shrink. And so are you a good issue spotter with people? I think so. I think that, you know, it's an occupational hazard. Sometimes you have to keep biting your tongue because you're sitting there and you think, that's pretty outrageous or, you know, that's pretty obvious. How, how quickly can you spot issues on people? You're like an issue detector in five minutes? <laughs> well, I, I think that what happens is that patterns appear very quickly. And if you are listening carefully, I think it's paying attention to what people say to you, listening to their stories, listening to what the stories say about themselves and others that can be easy, you can easily detect. All right, so I'm trying going. to get some free shrinkage right yeah. now. So, so what, <laughs> what kind of issues do you think I have? And how do you think I'm doing with my issues? So I, I think you're kind of an amazing guy, Anthony, because you've accomplished a lot in your life. And uh, you make a big deal. Well, my on, current shrink never says that to me. I just want to point that out to right, listeners. Well, go ahead. Right. You've accomplished a lot in your life. You've checked off a lot of boxes. Um, but I, what I find very impressive is that you're constantly reminding yourself by telling others this about uh, the failures of the past, um, how hard you do not want the failures to repeat themselves. Frailty. Yeah, well, I, well, I want to express to people that, that our own humanity, I think a lot of the people in our industry in particular, they want to pretend that they have a sanitized life. They want to pretend that, geez, they didn't really have a lot of mistakes or they get things right. I find people that make a lot of money sometimes think they're experts in other areas of life, which in fact, they may not be experts at all. No, I think that happens a lot where you, uh, you, know, you meet people who are very, very successful at making money or at something else, and they feel that now they're an expert at everything. And very often child-rearing. All right, or, but you're sugarcoating a little bit. It's okay. What, what, no, do, you, what uh, do you think the issue is? No, I, I, I can tell me. you. So, you know, it's really interesting, Anthony. I think that one of the reasons you talk about the failure so much is a way to protect yourself from failure. So if I say it out loud, if I tell people, by the way, I failed in a business, I failed the bar exam, uh, it's not only to make other people like you better and to feel something for you because, look, he's not that threatening, even though he's very successful, even though there's $13 billion under management, he's very real and very modest. I think you also do it for yourself. You do it not only because you, you know that it'll engage other people, but it's a safety valve. So don't get don't let your head get too blown up. Mm -hmm. I'm going to keep reminding myself mm -hmm. that, you know, success is not necessarily around the corner. There may be another bump in the road. And I think that's a good defense mechanism. I think it actually works for you. Do you think do you think some I, I think do you think people are a product of their environment? So I, I would tell you that the evidence is not there. The evidence is that uh, nature, your genes, are much more important than the environment. Now, that means that your parents can make things worse or they can make things better. But they're not the one who gives you attention deficit disorder or gives you the one that makes you have obsessive compulsive disorder or, or, or makes you foolish, gives you low IQ versus high IQ or what you do with your IQ. Um, and I think a parent who recognizes who their children are and says, look, this is a very ambitious kid. I'm going to help channel that ambition. Uh, that's going to make a big difference. So, look, a parent who has a really good, does a really good job keeps exposing their kids to lots of stuff takes them to the football game, takes them to the concert, gives them lots of opportunity. But, um, you know, it, it all, and most parents, by the way, want their kids to have a better life than them. And so they recognize, hopefully, that they're not going to repeat mistakes, even though inevitably, I think parents are always saying, God, I sound like my dad or I sound like my mother. You know? Well, I, I mean, again, this is my personal opinion, and I think I shared this with you once in a private conversation, but 
when I think of my children or I think of children in general, I'm always super careful not to give them advice from my perspective or from my vantage point or what I like in life. I try to really listen to what it is they like doing or how they are. Uh, Byron Wien, who's a legendary investor, he worked at Morgan Stanley for many years. He's now 85 years young, uh, ensconced at Blackstone. And he writes these uh, the 10 most unpredictable events uh, that he predicts will happen for the coming year and so forth. I had him on Wall Street Week. And he said to me, he firmly believes that something seminal happens to people between the age of 11 and 17. He's not exactly sure what it is, but it could be a heartbreak, a divorce. It could be a family tragedy, like a death in the family, uh, where someone's pulled or pushed in a certain direction. Moreover, during that period of time, 11 to 17, the concrete is setting on what you like to do. And so for him, uh, he was orphaned. He was living in Chicago, and he took up the practice of investing and playing with the stock market and thinking about investing. Uh, And he ultimately was able to get himself a scholarship to Harvard. But his thesis is, whatever you like doing sort of between 11 to 17, if you can figure out a way to do that for the rest of your life, uh, that's going to be the thing that you love and you'll never work a day. Uh, For myself, I was selling. You know, I was selling seeds. I sold seeds for the American Seed Company. I was knocking on door to door. How old, wait, wait a second. How old were you? Okay, so I was 11 years old. I responded to a uh, comic book advertisement in the back from the American Seed Company. So what's really said, amazing is that you grew up on Long Island, right? Yeah, grew up on Long and Island. And I grew up on Long Island. And I had comic books, too. And so I was selling Christmas cards from the cheerful Christmas remember card Remember the cheerful? Yeah, yeah. yeah, and I would knock on doors and make money this way. My parents oh. thought I was an alien because they couldn't believe I was well, not you were a lot selling. smarter than me. I was the Christmas, Christmas cards card. had a higher price point. <laughs> yes, I was selling did. the lower price. Seeds, you know, I, yeah. I I was living in a poorer neighborhood than this guy. You know, it's the difference between the Jews and the Italians on Long Island, I guess. But but I but I had these uh, I had these seeds. I Mrs. Stallmaker, may your soul rest in peace, and I hope you forgive me. I rang the doorbell. She was my next door neighbor. She said, "Come on in, Anthony. I'm trying to sell her seeds, uh, pumpkin seeds, dandelion seeds. I don't know what they were." She's looking through the seeds, and she said, well, "What are you going to do with the money that I give you?" And so I had the book with me. Now what happened was. You would sell the seeds, you'd take the cash, and then you'd send it back to the company, and then they'd give you these points, and then you could pick something out of the book, and then they'd mail you the thing. Okay? I said, you see this Bible right here, Mrs. Stallmaker? This is what I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to get. And she said, you are absolutely and totally full of blankety-blank, blankety-blank. What do you really want? And so I broke down. I said, I really want that sports watch. It's a James Bond knockoff. Right. She bought like 17 bags of seeds from him. <laughs> you know, you know, it was amazing. The place actually went out of business because what happened was the kids were selling the seeds and they were pocketing the money. But Stunad <laughs> over here, which stands for stupid in Italian, I mailed the seeds back. I still have the watch. It's like in my mother's basement or something like that. But, 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 but go you, back to what Byron was talking yeah. about because I actually, yeah. I actually know Byron and Byron is an outlier. Byron is a remarkable man because environment does have an effect. Remember, we talked about parents making it better or worse. The death of a parent is a very, very traumatic event. It affects you economically, psychologically, emotionally, lots of different things. But the brain is really what's cooking at 11 years old. At 11 years old, your brain starts to prune itself. In other words, you you become a much more efficient learning machine. And there are lots of things in your brain that you haven't used. And the brain basically says, use it or lose it. So if 
you haven't put a golf club in your hand by the time you're 11, that track that teaches you how to swing that golf club, that natural track disappears. If you haven't learned Italian or Greek or Latin or Spanish, you are losing all those tracks. So more plasticity in the brain at an earlier age. Yes, and therefore great Olympic uh, the great successes in sports, they didn't start learning at 11 or 12. They learned much earlier. And so what happens is that a lot of moodiness starts going on when you are 11 or 12, but it's a great time to learn academics. It's a great time to learn good things and bad things. So if you start doing drugs at 12, 13, 14, it's going to be a lot harder to stop than if you start using uh, illicit drugs at 18, 19, or 20. Explain, so, explain why. I think it's okay. important for people to hear so, that. Think about the fact that this brain, which has a whole bunch of country roads in it, starts developing superhighways. So the work in eighth grade and ninth grade is significantly harder than the work in fourth and fifth and sixth grade. And when you have a revolution, when you have construction going on in the brain, that's when bad things that were predestined genetically, depression, anxiety, uh, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, are more likely to come out. So that's why the first bout of depression is at 13. That's why the bout of um, schizophrenia might come out at 18 or bipolar disorder at 20. But simultaneously, as you're paving these new roads for learning, it makes learning more efficient. So when you try algebra or calculus, uh, when you do um, advanced world history, your brain is actually great at this. And the material that you learn is sticks longer. And the problem is that not only do good things stick, but bad things stick also. So addicts who start drinking or start doing illicit drugs or start doing other things at that time of life, it's much harder for them to stop. So as a parent, delay, delay, delay. Talking to your kid about not doing these drugs until 18, maybe 19, until you get into college, or keeping limitations. Now, what's the other big problem with the brain between the ages of 11 and let's say 24 is the ability to assess risk. They risk is more fun than caution. And so, so you don't have the downside protective mechanism that you get when you're Let's older. just do it. It feels good, you know? The prefrontal cortex, this part of your brain in the front of your head, which tells you strategy, tells you caution, tells you condoms, helmet. It doesn't talk to the rest of the brain. The back of the brain, which talks about joy and fun and motorcycles and speed and girls and lots of, that's what's really working. Is and there so, an immortality aspect yes, to this? Yes. Where people and, and, think, oh, geez, I'm so young. My dad's 50, but let's face it, 50's forever away. And you feel totally, a, you're invulnerable. You, you are, you can take on anything. And by the way, America really loves this. Look at all the advertising, because we think back on that time. If we think too hard, we think of the embarrassment of being an adolescent. Very creepy times, you know, feeling, do I belong, don't I belong? But America loves the sex and youth of these people. All the models are 16, yep. 17, 18 years old. They're not 40 or 50 or 60 years old. So the problem with this is that you also understand that you're impulsive. So when you think, so there was a terrible case in Rutgers, I don't know if you remember, a boy named Tyler Clementi. Terrible. So Tyler Clementi is a 19-year-old freshman at Rutgers, and he's not sure about his sexuality. And he's making out. He's not hooking up. He's kissing another guy in his dorm room, in the privacy of his dorm room. Unbeknownst to him, his roommate is live streaming this event. And it's seen by 50, 70, 80 people. He's so humiliated. But the video does go viral. Right. 
It does. But before that, even, just the, humili- hum- hum- the humiliation and embarrassment of the people who are in his world is so bad that he can't stop and think and say, what does this mean? Maybe I'm gay. Who cares? I have a bad roommate. He jumps off the George Washington Bridge. Now, I don't think he was psychiatrically ill. I think it's that his prefrontal cortex wasn't connected to the rest of his brain. It wasn't talking to the rest of the brain. It wasn't communicating. And yet we have— But he probably felt the divot of that as a gigantic disaster for him. Correct. That that humiliation was something that he didn't think he was going to survive. So, Anthony, do you think that Anthony Weiner— Remember Donald Manis? Yes, but wait. Do you think about Anthony Weiner? So Donald Manis had psychiatric history. Mm -hmm. But think about Anthony Weiner. Did Anthony Weiner feel more humiliated or more embarrassed? Did uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger feel more embarrassed that you know he had a child out of wedlock with his housekeeper? Did Elliot Spitzer, who lost the governorship, did Bill Clinton, who um, went through an impeachment uh, hearings? Now, I would imagine all of them felt humiliation. All of them felt embarrassment. In fact, when we think about it, it's hard when you run into some of these people, it's hard not to think about their embarrassing moments. And yet no one, as far as we know, has made a suicide attempt. And I think that speaks to the fact that they do have a prefrontal cortex. They are able to say, okay, how am I getting out of this hole? That's when people deal with failure. They have the ability to say, this is awful, but what can I imagine? What can I figure out to get me through another day and figure out where's the next, you know, how am I going to climb up the next mountain? And that resilience is really important. And unfortunately for teenagers, that may explain why every year we lose 5,000 kids to suicide between 14 and 24. And and yet to go back to Byron, he's absolutely right, because if you are exposed to the right things during that time, you can figure out what your passion is and what's going to keep you going. So translate it for our parents parents out there and, and for ourselves who are parents like so what does that mean for them what's the advice that you would give them based on what you just said in that thesis so I think that you know first of all I think it's very hard not to be critical and what you really want to be is a supportive parent who understands that means that when kids tell you something that you don't like hearing that their politics is much more to the left or to the right of what you think is correct you don't shut them down, you really listen. When they tell you how they're feeling and they feel very intensely, you listen to it. But at the same time, it's your job to set limits and it's your job to keep exposing them and keeping also roads open. So when they say, oh, I'm done, I don't wanna, I'm not interested, I'm not gonna go to college or I don't care how I do in school, that's the time where you say, no, I'm sorry, you know, I, I disagree with you. We're going to keep down so you this you've got to be the parent, not their friend sometimes. All the time. Yeah, all I don't think that's, it's, it's, not, it's not your it's role. A, it's a v- and it's hard. It's thing. very hard I, because I, we want our kids to like us. We not, want them to love us, but we also would like them to like us. Not that my kids would ever listen to one of my podcasts, but if they were <laughs> listening out there, you've heard this a million times from me. I am not your friend. I'm your parent. I don't care if you hate me. Yeah. Harder to, harder to practice. Very painful, yes. by the way. Yeah. And Can also, I lay down on his couch and talk <laughs> about how painful no, no, that no, is? But Anthony, the other thing me. is, do you remember, I, I, have, um, I have three sons, and my oldest son, when he was around seven years old, actually said to me, um, he asked me a question, I gave him some advice, and he said, I'm so glad you're a psychiatrist, I don't know how I'd get through childhood without <laughs> your psychiatric advice. I said, I don't give you psychiatric advice, I give you fatherly advice. He's a very bright kid, he said, Dad, your fatherly advice is better than average because you're a child psychiatrist. I ran back to my wife and I said, do we have a video camera? Because I want to put this on tape because in seven years, when he turns 14, I'm going to go through this tunnel yeah, where yeah. I am a jerk. You're going and to be everything, a, a, a Mark right, Twain said, right? right? <laughs> and, and that's the 
hard part, the 14-year-old, when those brains are changing, to stay consistent, to not run a popularity contest, and to keep as many options open for your children as possible. So, so how do I mean, you, you mentioned the nature versus nurture and the genes and the relationship to all, all of that stuff about your personality. But as a parent, how do we teach our children success? Can we teach them success? Uh, is it self-derived or is it influenced by their environment? Oh, I think that's the part where parents can make it better. So we start with, in our house, we finish what we start. The other thing that I think is very important is you mentioned if you were born in the United States, you have a chance. Well, there's some interesting studies about this. It turns out that if you're a first-generation American, if you are Korean, if you are Jewish, if you're Italian-American, um, you have a much greater chance of success if you're that first-generation American. Now, why? So if you dig deeper into the data, you find out, A, this all three of those groups, those first-generation Americans, all believe, A, that they belong to a special club, that you know they're a member of a group. And they also feel that they have special skills. You know, we work harder, we're better at math, we have better verbal skills. Uh, whatever it is, we as a group believe that, and I as a member of that group believe it. And the third thing that's most important, they delay gratification. They don't eat the second marshmallow. You know about the yeah, so test let's, of the- Let's talk about that. So that was in Daniel Goldman's famous book, Emotional Intelligence. It was a marshmallow test done in the uh, late Walter, 60s. Well, yeah, Walter Michelle is still alive. He's 87 years old. He's a professor at Columbia. Phenomenal test. Of course, my, again, my kids aren't listening, but if they were, <laughs> they've heard me bring up the marshmallow test many times. And so what is it? You get a four or five-year-old. You say, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to give you a marshmallow right now. Or give me a couple of minutes. I'm going to go run an errand, and I'll give you two marshmallows when I come back. And what they discovered is that the kids that were able to delay the gratification, how many years did they wait, Harold? 10 years? 15 years? Keep going. And they discovered that the kids that were able to delay gratification were more satisfied with life. They could experience the ups and downs and the ebbs and flows of life in a way where they could endure pain. Uh, and they could see into their futures that by working hard and persevering, they were going to get to the end result. So here's the, the fun part. The journey this. was as good as the destination. Okay. So here's the fun part. The first part is, isn't this interesting, right? You have a kid who will not have, you know, won't eat the marshmallow and wait for the two marshmallows if they wait a few minutes. Or you have a kid who just scarfs down the first marshmallow. And you think, oh, no, this is not good. So can they we have more addiction issues? Right. They are more temperamental. They feel victimized by life. They don't bounce. When they fall down, they say, woe is me. It's everyone else's fault. So as a parent, can we do something about this? So I think it's really interesting that KIPP, one of the best charter school systems in the country, they're in San Francisco, they're in New York, they're in Texas, they actually have T-shirts that say, I don't eat the second marshmallow. So it's not only that they wait for two marshmallows, they save a marshmallow. Now, essentially what KIPP is doing is saying, we can teach kids that there's a need to delay gratification. Do you believe that? I, and I do, but it's got to be done every day. It's done by modeling. It's done by, it's it's done at Christmas time where you say, you know what, you're going to get usually this 12 nights of Christmas, we usually give you 12 gifts. We're going to only give you 11 gifts so a month before. One of those nights, let's take the money and figure out what we're going to do for somebody else. Why don't we think about, is there a person you want to give the money to? Is there a charity you want to give it to? Should we give it to the church, the homeless center? The idea of the other, the idea that you don't 
need every single gift. Well, and talk, that doesn't make a difference even if you're... Yeah, okay. Well, talk about that for a second, the psychology of giving, because you, we both know that there's a very big therapeutic benefit to reaching out and helping another person. So, and it's really interesting, considering what I do for a living, running a not-for-profit requires fundraising. And you find yourself fascinated by the fact that very, very rich people don't necessarily give away money proportionally, that there'll be other people who don't have as much money who are, and America is filled with philanthropic people. They don't have to be billionaires or millionaires. We give away more money here than the rest of the world. I mean, it's, you know. Part of the culture. It is part, it's deep in our DNA, whether you're Catholic and you've learned by doing it at church, or whether you're Jewish and you feel that this is part of your culture, or you are a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant and feel this is your country and you have to take care of the rest of the people in the country. It is definitely part of our culture. But it's interesting that people who learn to give away money and give away their time and volunteer as children feel enriched later on in life when they are able to give away more money. And there are other people who feel so insecure and the number in their bank account or the number compared to somebody else's bank account has become so important to them. They're so shaky that every time you ask them for money, you actually feel like oh. you're surgically removing a piece of their manhood or of their womanhood I, instead of enriching that. them. I, I think one, I mean, look, this is a little damning of our industry, but I've experienced situations in our industry where people are seismically assessing you and what your net worth is. And by the way, if it's more than theirs, they're in a full-blown obsequious mode. If it's less than than theirs, they treat you like you're a pane of glass and spray Windex on you and wipe your face to look through you to the next person at the cocktail party. Well, it's funny that you say that because since I'm at the cocktail party and clearly everyone knows that my net worth is not as large as everyone else's, it is a fascinating phenomenon where people say hello to you and they're looking over your shoulder to yeah, see they're if there's somebody else that they should talk to. Unless and, they got a problem with one of their <laughs> well, kids. Well, they're yeah. like, whoa, 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 I got to get some free advice from you right now, brother. So, so this is actually from Jonathan from Inglewood, New Jersey, uh, writing in to us, asking, knowing you were going to be on today, asking questions. Uh, Dr. Koblitz, I have three children in private school, and I think they're doing pretty well, but how can I help steer my children in the right direction when the community is in is praising popularity over things that I think matter, like kindness and integrity? I think there's something to be said about being honest with your kid about how powerful the peer group is when they become a teenager, okay? You can't pretend that going to school and not wearing the clothes that everyone else is wearing or not doing the activities that everyone else is doing is easy. That doesn't mean they have to do it. And I think the most important message that parents have to know is they remain the most influential factor in their kid's life throughout their life. So even though a kid hits 12 or 13 and the peer group is more important than it's ever been before, mom and dad, their opinion is really important. If you really don't believe in premarital sex, if you really don't think your kids should be smoking marijuana or cigarettes, if you think your kids should go to church every Sunday and you keep consistent, that's really important. I mean, I'll, I'll share a story with, I, 
I'm obsessed about illicit drugs because, unfortunately, I have a skewed sample of kids who come to see me. So I'll see kids who have psychiatric problems who are using illicit drugs. It could as, be self-medicating. Self-medicating, and it's so you have ADD and you have dyslexia, so you now have a learning problem and you have uh, a short attention span. Anxiety and related to it, and you're smoking marijuana on a regular basis, which we know is bad for short-term memory. And so now I'm trying to treat a kid with two problems. You know, the brain problem that they were born with, and now the problem that they're making it worse. So if that's what you're having at work every single day, and then you have little boys in your house, I could tell you that when they got closer and closer to marijuana use, I kept saying, I want to make a deal. You know, I don't want you smoking marijuana until you're a freshman in college. I want you to delay it, delay it, delay it. And uh, it's interesting because my youngest son was the most popular. He was the alpha male. He was the guy in his class when he said, tuck your shirt out, everyone untucked. If he said, you know, wear your hat backwards, everyone wore their hat backwards. backwards. And, you know, and my other two kids weren't those kind of alpha males. And he told everyone in school, I'm not smoking marijuana until I graduate. And now it's his senior year. He's gotten to college. I'm pretty confident he's not going to elicit use, you know, become an abuser. And he naturally said to me, don't get wishy-washy. He said, what do you mean? He said, I've told everyone I'm not doing it. And if you start to change your opinion now, it's going to have a very, very bad effect on me. So I think the parents have to remember, no matter what's going on, um, whatever is going on, it's important that you're consistent. So for Jonathan, if you think integrity, if you think being a good guy, if you think being polite is important, you model it and you reinforce it. And you don't you don't tell him that the other people are bad. The, you, don't, you don't say they're the bad people or the inadequate people and we're the good people. It's not holier than thou. But this is what we do as Jonathan's family. Yeah, it's right, a right, right or wrong but, thing, though, right? Right. But remember what I talked about? You want to feel like you're a member of a group. Your children should feel like I'm a member of the Scaramucci family. Scaramucci's don't do that. Jonathan's don't do that. The Koplowitz's do this, but we don't do that. That's a very Great important advice. value. What what does the Child Mind Institute do? I think the best way to think about this is most people in America know St. Jude's Children's Hospital. 63 years ago, Danny Thomas started a hospital that wanted to eliminate childhood cancer and has done a remarkable job of making pediatric leukemia now something that very few kids die from. And when I was a kid, 94 out of 100 kids died. And we think that it's necessary to tackle psychiatric and learning disorders. And as I said to you before, 17 million kids have these disorders, 18 and younger. And number one, by the way, the number one group, 31% of the 17 million have an anxiety disorder, either OCD or generalized anxiety or separation anxiety. And these disorders are not only bad for your life, because if you're afraid to sleep away from home or you can't go to school in the morning, or if you're vomiting all the time before tests, it certainly it impairs your life, it's bad for your brain. And we know that 75% of all psychiatric illness shows up before the age of 24 and 50% before the age of 14. Remember the brain stuff we were talking about. So the Chalman Institute is dedicated to transforming the lives of these kids. And we do it three ways. We do it one way that we see kids there. I think we have a gold standard clinical program where we've seen over five and a half thousand families from 43 states and 29 nations in the last five years. But I think more importantly, what we're doing is we're trying to do science. We're trying to find a biological marker in the brain of a kid with one disorder versus another disorder. I think it's not enough to say, oh, this is the brain of a kid who's healthy, and this is a kid of a brain who has an a is atypical. That's not enough. 
You need to do atypical to atypical to atypical, meaning that if you start to cough and I start to cough, you may have a bacterial infection that gets penicillin. I'm coughing and I have a virus. Well, we could do a blood test and we know I get rest and tea, you get penicillin. And we need to do that for these kids because left untreated, they are more likely to drop out of school. They're more likely to go to jail. They're more likely to get pregnant. It's it, Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, this is bad news. 5,000 kids will kill themselves between 14 and 24 this year. 600,000 will show up in an emergency room after a serious attempt. Oh, it's just bad. Well, what and, I, I oh, greatly appreciate about you is that you came out to our SALT conference uh, over the last couple of years and addressed this with many of the uh, delegates that came out there as well. So we want to continue to help you raise awareness of these well, issues. Well, I was going to tell you the thing that could transform the world today before we find that biomarker is I think we need to get parents of 10-year-olds and older to get better informed about their kids. And that will be good for their kids' mental health because I would tell you that the average parent – knows when something's wrong. Okay, so how can we do that, Doc? Well, I was going to say that I think they need to come to childmind.org. They have to, if they're worried, there's a symptom checker. They don't have to go to a doctor's office. F spend 30 minutes, it's free, and you know that it's solid information. We don't take money from the pharmaceutical industry, from guns, from liquor, from tobacco. It's scientifically sound, and therefore, if you really are worried, then you could take that report to your pediatrician. And we even have a guide for the 10 questions you should ask your pediatrician. And if you find yourself in front of a mental health professional and you are lost, you are so anxious, you never thought you'd have to be sitting in front of some kind of mental health doctor, then we have 10 questions that you should ask them. Because I find it fascinating that parents are so overwhelmed that they don't ask the doctor, by the way, how many times have you seen a kid with this disorder? What happens if I don't do anything? What happens if I take a pill? What happens if we do talk therapy? How long will it take? You'd ask more questions of man redoing your bathroom than you do of a per person who's about to take care of your kid's head. And I think that we need to become more mentally health literate. You know. The, the Duchess of Cambridge has just started with Prince William and Prince Harry a whole program in England about children's mental health. The, the Duchess of, of Cambridge is going to be the Queen of England someday. She came out and she said, I hope that someday if George or Charlotte are worried about something, are, are troubled, that they'll feel comfortable going to see a psychiatrist. It's that kind of openness. Of reducing uh, the stigma. Yeah, that mental health is equal to physical health. It's all one and the same. Your brain is one of the organs of your body. Well, ter terrific way to end this. I want to thank you, Dr. Harold Koplowitz, for the great work that you're doing. And uh, also, I want to encourage people to log on to www.childmind.org. Go get that information. Harold, what's your Twitter handle? Do you have one? I do. And Don't show a sign of your age. I'm let's, my let's age, hear it. and uh, if you give one second, we'll give you your, I don't know. Sorry. It's at childmind.org. Oh, it's at childmind.org. And also that Dr. Koplowitz. And one at Dr. Koplitz. Obviously, I have a ghost Twitter. <laughs> Someone is tweeting for me. We just blew you up. Uh, just so you guys know out there, Harold Koplitz is not a millennial. Okay, but you can find me at Scaramucci. Remember to email us at podcast at skybridgeinsights.com. Uh, and we look forward to having you listen to our next podcast. Thank you very much.